Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp. I'm here on New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. We're here today to discuss There is a North, Fugitive Slaves, Political Crisis, and Cultural Transformation in the Coming of the Civil War, published earlier this year by University of Massachusetts Press. And its author, of course, is uh, Professor John Brooke. He is the Warner Woodring Chair and Arts and Sciences Distinguished Professor at Ohio State University. Welcome to the show, Professor Brooke. Thank you, Ryan. Pleasure to be here. Looking forward to this conversation. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the cover image and cover selection for your book? Well, that's that's yeah, fun to talk about that. Yeah, this is uh, this is a, a great picture, which I discovered as I was working on the illustrations, which one of my former graduate students said, you've got to have pictures. So I said, all right, I started digging around for pictures and, and this picture came up and um, it, it, it represents the end of the story. And the end of the story is, you know, the liberation of, of, of Americans from slavery. And one of the most dramatic parts of the image is the kid, little kid at the bottom of the picture who's waving at the black troops. So the troops coming in are the, the uh, black soldiers of the 25th Corps, who are, it's an all-black um, uh, army corps. And there are, there are soldiers waving at the, at the clearly black, um, a little black kid and a, a mother standing. Um, and it's a very powerful picture about family. And it precedes this event within 15 or 20 minutes of this depiction. Um, there's a, fairly famous event where a um, uh, a black chaplain, um, Garland White, is reunited with his mother after 20 years of uh, having been sold into the slave trade as a small child. Uh, and he pops up at various times through the book and is, is part of my story. Um, so this is really a, a, an image seemingly about, about um, the victory of the North, but it is more importantly and equally about the reunification of uh, black families separated in slavery. So what prompted you to re-examine the early 1850s in your study? Well, I, I've been 
teaching the period for decades. I, um, I had a series of, of presentation op opportunities that started me thinking about, hmm, what should I do next? And I was pretty dissatisfied with the leading focuses of research on the coming of the Civil War. Maybe we can get to that in a little while. Um, I was also influenced by events in the public sphere. That was the summer 2010 of the Occupy movement. And I was very interested in the uh, in narratives, in you know how narratives are built in the public space, in the public sphere. So I saw the opportunity, what I thought would be a semi-short, synthetic, sort of an essay, and it kind of got bigger and a little bit more original. Um, and I explored broadly what I conceive to be very traditional political history, which focuses on Washington, which I've never done before. That was kind of fun. But also a cultural analysis of literature, music, and the theater, all sorts of local vignettes, um, and all this provided me an opportunity to 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 um, uh, explore not only the events of a transformative moment, but also how events happen. And so maybe we can get into that later too. I'm interested in the process of events. So in the end, this is not an entirely entirely original argument, but it's one I would say that has been ignored by historians of slavery and of anti-slavery. What is your overall argument and how does it challenge current understandings of the early 1850s and the coming of the Civil War? So my thinking here is that um, the political history of the coming of the Civil War has to address as uh, fundamental um, the shift in Northern opinion, Northern public opinion uh, between 1850 and 1856. Um, if we look at votes, uh Northern vote shifted from uh, from uh, uh, virtually nothing in 1852 and 1848. 14% of the, of the Northern vote was anti-slavery, and it jumps to 45% by 1856. And all it took was a few more states for Lincoln to win in 1860. So the, most of the work of the to form the Republican Party had been done by 1856, somewhere between 1850 and 1856. And I wanted to explore exactly how that happened. Um, and so this gets to really the first of my my uh, critiques of current thinking, which is that, oh, that happened because of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, and uh, where Kansas was open to slavery and the doctrine of popular sovereignty. I would argue that's not sufficient, uh, nor is the uh, assault on Sumner, Charles Sumner on the Senate floor in May of 1860. Uh, why were these responses so intense? And those, the intensity of those responses have to be explained by really by prior events. So I start the clock ticking in my interpretation, my argument, uh, with the Fugitive Slave Law passed in 1850, in September of 1850, uh, and then the ensuing public response with the intervention of cultural actors, primarily uh, Harry Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin, which does play a huge role in this book. Um, but secondarily, Stephen Foster, um, described by Bob Dylan as America's first great singer-songwriter, uh, publishers, theater entertainment entrepreneurs, all playing into a what we can call a major modern media event. In fact, probably the first major modern media event. So I conceive of the whole period as dominated by a media event that has a beginning, a middle, and then a kind of a routinized uh, permanence uh, down into the Civil War. Let us explore the books in terms of, of that three-act structure you just referred to. 
the uh, structures challenged and defended the first couple chapters, the liminal crisis and cultural intervention, which is chapters three to six, and the coalescence and uh, confirmation of a new structure, which is the last uh, three chapters. So the fr- for the first part, structures challenged and defended. Um, what generated a slavery structure between 1776 and September uh, 1850? And if you can address your arguments regarding a black missile tree, that would be great. Well, let's let's uh, take that in pieces here. Um, the you know the anti the slavery structure. Basically, the, the first framing here is that um, I um, I have an understanding of of. Uh, how history works, which is that there are things that are semi-permanent and are hard to break down. And they, they're what anthropologists call structures. Um, and they, when they break down, you go into a crisis, uh, what I call, what they call a liminal crisis. And then they have, there has to be a coalescence and a, and a new structure has to emerge. So what was the old structure? The old structure was hammered out during the revolution and the constitutional uh, debates in 1787. And the South did not get everything it wanted. Um, it didn't get an explicit statement that slaves were property, but they got enough uh, to build what we call the Compromise of 1787, in which there would be uh, union would be linked inexorably to slavery. Union with Slavery, the Compromise of 1787. Um, and pretty much everybody, um, you know, the, the, the abolitionists were voices. They were, they were important in, somewhat in retrospect because they were a small minority. Uh, no matter how, how uh, powerful and dramatic their voices were, um, they did not swing significant numbers of Northerners, um, unfortunately. The vast majority of Northerners, uh, Northern voters stayed with their parties. Um, the, the Whigs and the Democrats who uh, worked to suppress this uh, discussion of slavery uh, in favor of the national debate, uh, really a big financial debate about banking and the, the role of government in the economy. And slavery was, was uh, pushed out of the political sphere. And the question is how they how they restored that to the political sphere. Now you asked about minstrelsy and therein is going to be kind of, I had to put that in that introductory chapter because it's going to be such an important story running through. And really minstrelsy is uh, blackface minstrelsy, not a pleasant topic uh, right now, very hot topic uh, in terms of our con- our co- contemporary understanding of, of race and history. If you look at it in, as it's in its development, it is very contradictory and very complex. And it's um, both a, as it are in its origins, it's used, it, it emerges as both a racist mockery of African Americans, but also strangely in complicated ways, kind of a celebration of Americanness because it was pitched against. The Blackface Minstrel Show was uniquely American and not European. And it weirdly, uh, white Americans used it as sort of a, a reference point for American national identity. Um, simultaneously, as they are um, mocking and uh, 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 and building a racial a racial uh, 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 culture that that had been lurking under the surface had been there all along and now it's put into theaters. Um, but it's, so you have this weird dynamic going on there in the thirties and the forties. It is fundamentally 
uh, mobilized to uh, reinforce the pro-slavery structure. Um, big part of my story is how for a few years, you know, early 1850s, much of the, some of the language of, of the missile shows is appropriated by anti-slavery, but we'll get to that. So you argue that uh, the Compromise of 1850 was, quoting you, a sham, a temporary truce, a, a, a band-aid. A band Can you uh, please address the uh, congressional speeches and those events that culminated in the Compromise of 1850, and if you can, uh, the conventions and petitions that also perhaps played a role? Well, let's. We can actually start with conventions because the the sort of launch of the Compromise of 1850 rested in the California State Conventions. Um, as two, you know, uh, uh, there were two meetings of the California Constitutional Convention in the fall of 1849, in which they wrote a um, free state con a constitution, which they delivered to Congress. Interestingly, and how I start this chapter, chapter two, um, is that as this is happening, Harriet Tubman is making her first escape from Maryland. Uh, and those who have seen the movie, let me pitch it, Harriet, uh, very dramatic image. That is a great movie. Uh, but, the, you know, the, the events that drive the compromise are the Mexican War territories that have been the territories, Mexican territories that have been captured from Mexico during the Mexican War and ceded to the United States by by the treaty um, are now, um, you know, the question of what their future will be. The gold rush has set the stage in California for California statehood. Um, meanwhile, there's, so on the one hand, there's the, will there be slavery in the territories, the Mexican war territories? Then there is the reality that white Southerners are increasingly panicked about the flight of fugitives of slaves out of the South, particularly the upper South, but also other areas making the way North um, as Harriet Tubman did um, uh, uh, to, uh, to, to freedom, freedom in the North, such as it might be. So they, this was an assault on their economic interest, assault on their sense of the, of reality that that uh, slaves were contented, slaves were on the move already, and this was um, undermining their their vision of what ought to be. So the 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 um, the, uh, the question you ask about the sham, the truce, the band aid qualities of the compromise. Compromise took eight months to hammer out uh, between January and September of 1850. Uh, it was blazing hot all summer. People were pulling pistols on each other. Um, it was a, one of the most intense uh, legislative sessions that ever happened um, in the United States. Henry Clay, who had forged the Compromise of 1821, tried to push through a single bill called the Omnibus Bill, put all the issues on the table uh, into one act, um, and that flailed around, he flailed around, the, the act gradually died, and it was, uh, it was basically dead by June. Meanwhile, Northerners had begun to challenge um, the, the, both the uh, concept of slavery going into the territories and the Fugitive Slave Bill, and these became major benchmarks for the anti-slave movement. Uh, and then between July and September, Stephen Douglas um, managed the compromise, basically chopped it up into five different bills and pushed through each bill separately as, you know, 
with separate constituencies. So the, the Fugitive Slave Act got strong Southern support across the board with some Northern Democrats um, and no Northern Whigs. Uh, the California Statehood Bill got the entire North supported it. And a few Southern Whigs, but no Southern Democrats. A very complicated uh, kind of strategy to separate out different constituencies to support each each of the five different bills that compromise the uh, the compromise <laughs> uh, that made up the compromise uh, and push them through. Um, lots of people basically to get it settled, but not have to vote for something would simply not show up. So there are large blocks of people who didn't vote and they were they were fairly decisive on different bills so this is you know this is why i call it a band-aid many people call it it's not a real compromise it was simply a kicking the stone down the road meanwhile the um uh there the petition doesn't northerners had north anti-slavery abolitionists had vote petitioned in huge numbers in the 1830s uh on the order of um 800,000 petitions in the 1830s, signatures on petitions in the 1830s. So then that had kind of gone under the radar, very relatively few petitions in the 1840s. And then with the a debate over the territories and the Fugitive Slave Act, uh, roughly in equal numbers, um, a, a, a major petition drive was was forged to um, send in petitions about both of these issues. Um, and um, uh, that, that peaked in the peaked uh, in the spring of 1850 and mobilized a lot of anti-slavery people for what was going to come uh, thereafter. So the second act of your book is liminal crisis and cultural intervention, September, 1850 to May, 1854. In the fall of 1850 and early 1851, what events and which crisis meetings facilitated a liminal language of movement? What do you mean by that? Especially for de- depictions of fugitive slaves. And then conversely, how has this liminality challenged electoral politics? So uh, first, let's yeah, remind, remind everybody the big picture here. We have the, we have the structures of pro-slavery, union slavery, um, uh, um, established and, and people challenging them, and then defended in defended uh, the 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 pro slavery forces thought they had achieved a great victory in eighteen in the Compromise of eighteen fifty. So for the North, though, this was this just sort of major crisis of you know they suddenly things began to shift, and most importantly was. Uh, they, they were happy about California, but the Fugitive Slave Act required northern um, everybody in the north to cooperate with slave catchers who appeared in northern towns um, in um, the starting right around the time that uh, the Fugitive Slave Act was signed. Literally the day of or a few days before they knew it was going to happen, they showed up and got themselves in position. Um, the, slave, the Fugitive Slave Act was signed on the 18th of September, and then it really unfolds over two weeks. There are um, slave hunters operating in a, a variety of northern towns and cities. People in Pittsburgh, in particular, Pittsburgh, I mean, it gets down to you can, there's a particular sequence of what happened. Huge numbers of people, uh, African Americans, uh, uh, formed almost militia companies and 
march north under arms uh, to uh, to toward Canada. Uh, there are arrests in Harrisburg and in New York City. There's gigantic publicity in the newspapers starting around the 1st of October. Um, and throughout all this, then there are a series of big, huge meetings, smaller meetings in smaller places, big meetings in New York and Boston uh, in early October. So it is a really an event that hits the public very hard. Uh, and behind this is this anxiety. What will I do if I have to cooperate with a federal officer? Um, so the, the newspapers start to get filled with language talking about the North as a hunting ground, the the Fugitive Slave Act as the Bloodhound Bill, the Manhunting Act, the Slave Hunting Act. Um, and all this is exploding in the early October of 1850 in the newspapers uh, with descriptions of then over the next you know, six to eight months, constant reinforcement and descriptions of flight and capture, of rendition to the South, um, of rescue, of resistance. Um, and all of this is, is couched. The language is emerging uh, even before Harriet Beecher Stowe starts writing, uh, but it's obviously the inspiration for her uh, in terms of what they called, and it's quote, I found dozens of these, um, they use the term outrage upon the family. The slave trade itself was an outrage upon the family by drive, by by separating families. Now the Fugitive Slave Act, dividing uh, northern black families um, either by flight to Canada or uh, rendition to the south, was dividing families and um, uh, creating an outrage. And this language of the outrage on the family um, is is really a driver. And in the end, that's why I love this this cover because. The family is essentially being reunited in on the cover of the book. So let's talk a little bit about Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uh, how did female celebrity in Washington, D.C. and the national publish, publishing industry shape the context for the emergence of the book? Well, what emerges in the late 1840s, and, and, um, and this has been covered by a lot of, uh, of historians of the rise of uh, women, women's authorship, uh, Mary Kelly in particular, is that um, a number of women are becoming um, very well-paid authors. And we know this. We know this. Um, it's a general trove. Nathaniel Hawthorne used to griped about the the uh, the sentimental the female sentimental writers who made tons of money and he made nothing. Um, well, people wanted their stuff. So basically, we're looking at a the emergence of a celebrity culture that is including women for the first time, really, in a hinge point there in the. You know, around 1849, 50, 51, it's just exactly the right moment. There are a series of authors, Emma Southworth, uh, a woman who wrote, wrote under the, the pseudonym of Grace Greenwood, um, Susan Warner, who's still a famous author, and Harriet Beecher Stowe herself um, was a noted author. They were, several of them were recruited by a guy named Gamuel Bailey under the advice of his wife, Margaret Bailey, and they, they had just moved from Cincinnati where they knew the Stowe's uh, to Washington. And they were, they were there to start up what, what they saw as a respectable middling anti-slavery newspaper. It was called the national era. Um, and so they, they, it was funded um, very heavily and it uh, had a very high circulation, relatively speaking on the order, I think about 25,000 copies a week, which was significantly more than most newspapers. Uh, and then in the, and I exactly, I think it's 1854. They went to a daily newspaper, which basically bankrupted them. But 
it really did the trick. So we're talking about the beginning. We have to think that this is happening simultaneous with one, the spread of the railroad is exploding in this period and the telegraph is following the railroads. Um, so we're talking about going from towards just in terms of communication, uh, forget about the railroad, but the telegraph went from zero in 1840 to thousands of miles of wire by 1853, and and the the key jump is really between 1848 and 1853. It went from a you know a, a country that had not been wired to a wired country, and the impact of the of the um, the telegraph is very analogous to the internet. There's actually a nice little book called The Victorian Internet, which is about the rise of the telegraph. So let's connect all of this to. Uh constitutional uh, electoral politics. How did, for example, Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin suggest, if if you can't explain this, quoting you, a a four-way matrix of constitutional and familial structures and liberating liminalities linked by two destabilizing vectors of connection? Okay, well, this is a little bit difficult to spell out um, verbally because it requires a nice little picture. But basically, if you distill it down, the, the message of Uncle Tom's Cabin is about the violence against the family. Slavery is violence against the family. That's the essential message. And then the subtext is what allows that violence? The Constitution allows that violence. So here are two central values. If you can really think of the Constitution and the family are core values in American society in the middle of the 19th century. Everybody um, is worships these two sort of central icons. Well, one in the anti-slavery vision and really captured why Uncle Tim's Cabin was so important was it captured the tension. The Constitution was um, – permitting the slave trade and the future slave law. Meanwhile, the, um, uh, the, the value of family and domesticity was requiring essentially rebellion against the, against the, um, uh, against the constitution by, um, uh, challenging it with, um, uh, sort of visions of, of, on the one hand, just radical individualism, sympathetic love, empathetic identification. All these things were coming out of family and domestic vision, um, but they were fundamental challenges to, to, the, to, the, to the legal structure of the Constitution. Eventually, the end of slavery realigns family and Constitution into harmony and everything will be fine. But as of the, the 1840s and 50s, there is a growing so with 1830s, 40s, and 50s. Uh, the Northern abolitionist vision is of the tension between the Constitution and the sort of basic structures of American life, particularly the family. And that's where Uncle Tom's Cabin comes in. It, it becomes the uh, very dramatic conduit for this understanding that suddenly just literally explodes on the American landscape. Can you uh, briefly address her colonization proposals, I believe, at the end of the book, and uh, and then also elucidate even more connections between reading publics, print cultures, and politics in Washington, D.C., including uh, Frederick Douglass's uh, promotions of her book? All right. Okay. Um, well, starting with starting, there's a lot there. <laughs> so, um, uh, you got colonization, reception, and um, connection of reading publics and and politics. Um, and um, 
let me let me start with colonization. The reality here is that Harriet Beecher Stowe shares with a very conservative audience, basically the women of the Whig Party. She had she, the, the the Free Soilers, uh, an anti-slavery party, and those families would have been they're already anti-slavery. The abolitionists are already anti-slavery. You don't have to convert them. Um, but she has to convert a group. She's not going to convert the pro-slavery Democrats, but she is going to work on the conservative Whigs and try to move them over the edge into anti-slavery. And they are a group, as are as are the Stowe's as well, who believe that, you know, are willing to go as far as uh, human rights for African Americans, but not civil rights. In other words, they're willing to say they shouldn't be free, but they also said, well, they shouldn't be American citizens. Um, so that's where colonization comes in. Since 1816, colonization movement had had uh, been rooted in this conservative you know, domain and had proposed ending slavery with the colonization of free blacks back to Africa. Uh, was something that American uh, American blacks despised um, and basically said, we built this country. Why should we have to leave? Um, but Harriet Beecher Stowe ends her book with a um, – the final, the final scenes are um, uh, sending the heroes uh, the, the Harris family – are colonized back to Africa. And this is really, um, it's an an expression of the limits of Northern opinion, um, even much anti-slavery opinion, including Abraham Lincoln. And when, you know, a question for my undergraduates, what happened when Abraham Lincoln finally made it over the, the, to the argument that African-Americans should be, should have voting rights, citizenship and voting rights. John Wilkes Booth said, that's it. And, assassinated him. So uh, this is a fundamental issue. And Harriet Beecher Stowe is kind of in a trajectory toward a rejection of colonization. But as of the writing of Uncle Tom's Cabin, she hadn't gotten there. And she gets a lot of grief. So that I've already addressed in some measure the the demographics of public reception. We have, you know, something on the order of circulation of 25,000 in the, the book. The chapters are first published by the National Era, um, and it's it's weekly syndicated. Um, it's like a TV show, and people were obsessed with it, but that was a fairly small audience. Maybe 100,000 people read it in the National Era. Then about maybe as many as 2 million people wrote read the book, um, there were at least 300,000 copies. And broadly, who were they? Yes, the abolitionists. Yes, the anti-slavery voters. Um, but then the, the you know, beyond there, the kind of base would be the, the Whig families um, who were inclined toward being dubious of slavery and inclined toward, you know, very, very, very um, – pious and, and religious, which was one of the bigger themes of, of, of Tom's Cabin. Um, and they were the really the target. Not too many Democrats, probably. What is also striking is two other audiences, free blacks and slaves read it. Um, and there are a number of cases where um, uh, you find slaves who are reading Old Tom's Cabin and use it almost as a handbook for escape. Um, and uh, 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 
uh, particularly in Kentucky and Maryland. And then there are Southern intellectuals who re- are reading it, and they are sort of constructing the cultural defense of slavery in reaction to it. And so much of the kind of justification of slavery uh, comes from the fear of Southern intellectuals that Uncle Tom's Cabin and Harry Peter Stowe have, uh, as well as Solomon Northrup, 12 Years a Slave. I mean, there is beginning to be a host of, as soon as she published her book, uh, there's a lot of copycatting going on. And a lot of uh, Northern publishers realize they can make a bunch of money um, on um, anti-slavery publication. So they they jump on the bandwagon. Meanwhile, in in the uh, in Congress, um, I've spent a lot of time working out the the the, the, the uh, and I probably way more than I haven't found um, the Congress, the Northern Congressmen, anti-slavery Congressmen are following this intensely. Many of them have read it, uh, read the book in series in the National Era, um, and they are they're getting information. People are writing to them saying it's having an impact and they're asking how much of an impact? Tell me more. Tell me more. The book came out in April of 1852 and by August uh, they were brave enough to a series of anti-slavery at the end of the sessions of Congress in 18, August of 1852. A number of politicians um, uh, had long kind of discussions of, of Uncle Tom's Cabin in their, in their speeches in the closing of the session. Most uh, importantly, Charles Sumner in a major speech called Freedom National. Uh, and um, he calls it this extraordinary southern, uh, sudden success surpassing all other instances in the records of literature cannot be regarded as merely the triumph of genius. Why higher than this? Uncle Tom's Cabin is the testimony of the people by an unprecedented act against the Fugitive Slave Bill. Um, so there's there essentially the politicians make the connection. They appropriate Uncle Tom's Cabin into the politics of um, of slavery by the end by uh, by the end of summer of 1852. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready to eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off now in your book you 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 argue for a creolization quote unquote a transformation of racialized cultural forms can you elucidate that argument by addressing theatrical productions of uncle tom's cabin as well as like the death of tom um and those panoramic productions and well, I, w- I would suggest that actually the you know the the rise of creolized uh, cultural forms um, has been underway. You know, it, it, 
has been underway since the rise of the blackface minstrelsy since the early 30s. And what happens here is less that Uncle Tom Cabin and the theatrical productions of it um, are the transforming agent. They are the appropriating agent. Uh, the creolization has been underway. People have been this jangle of of um, of culture has been has been um, uh, underway since the early 30s. And suddenly, you know, and they're embedded. I mean, there's a long story, but but they're embedded in Uncle Tom's Cabin. There's no way to escape it. There are minstrel themes in um, the way she presents characters in Uncle, in Uncle Tom's Cabin. It becomes a vehicle. And then it becomes turned against against slavery for a few years. Um, once they have a, a a a text, Uncle Tom's Cabin goes into the theaters, and it gets mixed up with the other available, the only major available kind of cultural form, which is the the minstrel show. Um, and so the minstrel show is fused with Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, Stephen Foster's songs or major songs are written in the early fifties, some of which Frederick Douglass actually celebrates. Um, um, and they, um, um, uh, they create kind of this, this explosion of culture. What, what is, what is um, this impact that has a huge, just a huge reach. Frederick Douglass um, in 1855, um, uh, talks about how, um, you know, in the wake of this exposure to this kind of exp- this, this uh, wider arena of Uncle Tom's Cabin theater, um, Uncle uh, anti-slavery is no longer a thing to be prevented. It's grown too large. His friends too numerous. The facilities too abundant. This is Douglas. Um, uh, he talks about its connections. Uh, Harry Beecher Stowe's heart-supplied intellect would light a million campfires in front of the battle of hosts of slavery. Um, this is 1855, not 1861. Um, this is the great age of anti-slavery literature. And then this is the key language. It would seem almost absurd to say it, considering the use that have been made of them. Frederick Douglass is saying this, that we have allies in the Ethiopian songs, those songs that constitute our national music and without which we would have no national music. They are heart songs. The finest feelings of human nature are expressed in them. Lucy Neal, old Kentucky home, uncle Ned. Um, and then he, he goes on to, 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 uh, to talk about the impact of, of the song. Uh, implicit is in that is the theater as well. Um, so uh, it's really very hard to capture the, the intensity of all this suddenly hitting the, the public and the, and it's really the theater producers who are sort of taking a ride. They are, they see the opportunity in Uncle Tom's Cabin's uh, profitability um, and they then weave into it the, um, the language that they know how to play with, which is the Mitchell show language. And uh, it makes a, it has, it has an enormous impact. Um, Can you uh, address, you've already discussed Frederick, uh, Douglas, can you address how the uh, 1854 Kansas-Nebraska Act secured congressional approval? And um, can you also provide context as well, like the uh, appeal of independent Democrats, those anti-act petitions, and the Anthony Burns riots in uh, Boston? Well, so 
what we get here is <laughs> actually something very familiar to Americans today, which is what I would call the disjunction, the total disjunction of the swamp from uh, the inner, the, 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 um, the, the swamp in Washington, D.C., from the, from the culture of the people. What is striking here is that, you know, Stephen Douglas, who was going to be the driver of the, of the, of the uh, Know Nothing Act, the Know Nothing Act, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, um, had took off for Europe for five months in 1853. In a certain sense, he missed the, the eruption of this culture. And I, I like to think of the Uncle Tam cabin media event as kind of like the Energizer Bunny. It literally sort of penetrated in so many ways in theater, in song, in panoramas that were traveling, traveling almost movies where they roll, had huge rolls of canvas and they would, they would tell, there would be a narrator telling the story as somebody played the piano and, and they rolled through this painted canvas that, that uh, uh, might be based on a Columbus cabin or, or something, you know, and many other things. Um, it was one of the most popular forms of entertainment. So he just missed all this, um, you know, the, the, the driving impact of, of, of the, of the, uh, of this new media event. Then he runs down to Washington uh, back into the bubble. So here's the deal. The Kansas Nebraska act across the North, everybody assumed it would fail. They had, put it forward to a vote um, and it had been delayed in March and they thought it's never going to happen. Um, but it actually did happen and it got, it went through by machine politics, um, totally just, just junk, you know, disjointed from, from what, uh, what's going on in the Northern public. Uh, the speaker of the house used some very imaginative ways to, push away legislation that might have slowed down its progress. And then they basically bribed uh, 10 or 15 Northern Democrats who had opposed it. And they said, look, okay, you'll lose your elections, but we'll, we'll give you some patronage. Um, and actually we've seen that in um, the movie Lincoln, where the same kind of bribing went on to get passage for the 13th amendment. Um, uh, the president put his finger on the scales in 1854 Meanwhile, to me, what is dramatic is that we have this this um, explosion of um, uh, the Uncle Tom's Cabin media event it reaches kind of a frenzy in the um, spring of 1854, where it's traveling all over the North. Uh, and I've tracked, you know, tried to track the trail of uh, different theater companies as they go from town to town to town. Um, and it is um, being publicized at the same time, the Kansas Nebraska Act is being publicized um, as fugitive rescues and fugitive renditions are being publicized. Um, and um, it, um, it, it it intersects at the very end. The last performances are, you know, winding down. There's essentially a wave of Oklahoma's cabin performances that end in late May of 1854. The whole country says, all right, we're done. Um, it happens simultaneously. There's a commentary on its impact, which is very interesting. Uh, people saying this, this has in the book and the theater has had a huge impact. Suddenly the bill passes and Anthony Burns, a fugitive in Boston, is arrested and marched down to the docks by uh, military uh, to protect to protect <laughs> to protect him from the uh, the crowd in Boston who wanted to uh, uh, to free him and send him to Canada. So all this is getting 
the telegraph, tick, 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 is, is sending out the information. It's all hitting the country, you know, about, you know, three or 400 miles uh, delay. I mean, you can actually track it uh, moving through the country and it more or less hit the entire country within, within three days, everybody. It's available to everybody, and people are so the people are experiencing things in the simultaneous fashion, which wouldn't have happened even five years before. Uh, it would have taken two or three weeks for this to penetrate. The way the telegraph is accelerating things, very similar to what's happening now. So the final act of your book is a coalescence and confirmation of a new structure, May 31st, 1854 to 1861. Can you please uh, discuss uh, the rise of the Know-Nothing Party and then the debates over slavery and anti-slavery that contributed to um, its, at least in part, dissolution? So so let's let's back up a hair and just um, just what I'm suggesting is the story is essentially over by... Uh, by May of 1854, once the Kansas-Nebraska Act is signed and we've had this sort of explosion of culture, um, that the basic outlines are there, but there is an unfortunate you know, delay, which is the rise of the Know-Nothings. And, and the, the background of the Know-Nothings or the Nativist Party was essentially the, ex- the dramatic expansion of immigration, um, the rise of anti-Catholicism among, um, or not so much the rise, but the manifestation of hostility to Irish Catholics, Irish uh, to, uh, uh, German Catholics by the Protestant majority, um, who've also given up drinking and joined the temperance movement. And there is rising tensions all during the 1840s about, um, you know, on cultural nativist lines, again, sounds very familiar to these days, um, uh, to our time now, all this, you know, in the context of economic and technological dislocation, and kind of similar too. So what happened? The the nativists actually moved very fast. And in June of 1854, literally within two weeks of the signing of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, uh, they, a group had emerged um, out of really uh, wigs in New York City uh, with the leaders, not all the Whigs, but a, a, a group of very distinct group of, of Whigs um, who basically saw the opportunity to create a, uh, a national party uh, that would replace the old Whigs and link the, the South with uh, link the South and the North behind a, uh, a new Whig party, which would be focused on nativism. Uh, they so they established the national order of the Star Spangled Banner uh, they, as a national council, and they had state councils, and they had this really a fraternal lodge structure that suddenly rippled across the country um, because they had thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people who knew how fraternal lodges, Masonic lodges, Oddfellows lodges, how they worked, and they became kind of the infrastructure for the of the rise of the nativists. Um, and again, their goal is to replace the Whigs as the national party against the Democrats. Um, meanwhile, uh, the anti-slavery forces had a meeting in Washington to said, Oh, we don't need a party. Uh, they basically dropped the ball in a huge way. Um, Republicans would emerge out of the, uh, the, the drama of the Kansas Nebraska act, uh, as anti-Nebraska uh, parties and win some elections, particularly in the Midwest. But broadly speaking, um, 
the the nativists uh, you know will compete and contest elections all over the country and do very well um for one election really 1854 um so the, the issue is could they pull it off uh could they create a national party that would um uh, focus on nativism um, and uni- unify old Whigs north and south, and um, um, and uh, stand stand against um, the rise of anti-slavery. The problem here is that Northerners who might join them, former Whigs, um, were already kind of they were on a gradient. Imagine kind of a spectrum from pure anti-slavery to pure nativism. And everybody more or less fits on this gradient, and a lot of very a lot of mixture in the middle. Um, so the natives win a bunch of state elections, and then they try to have a national convention in 1855. Um, and the the powers that be, the New York faction, uh, their elite, uh, with the Southerners, demand that everybody sign an oath, basically, um, to the um, to support the Fugitive Slave Law and the Kansas-Nebraska Act. And once they did that, uh, Henry Wilson of Massachusetts led a, uh, a group of the majority of the Northern delegates out of the convention um, and disrupted the convention and, and basically proved that you could not create a national movement on around nativism because Northerners, when push became to shove, the Northern of the, the majority of these politicians and voters who were inclined toward nativism saw slavery as a bigger threat. So in the end, they had they balanced a period where people were weighing these two forces. Um, you know, is slavery a threat? Are immigrants a threat? And they said, oh, well, slavery's a threat. Um, and so this um, uh, demonstrated the impossibility that nativism would be merged as a, uh, a grounds for perpetuating the kind of union pro-slavery uh, vision of um, that had prevailed before 1850. In late 1855 and early 1856, how and why did ongoing performative and print cultures, as well as dinner meetings and that contest for Speaker of the House, set the stage for the establishment of a National Republican Party amidst a chorus of "quote unquote There is a North." Well, the way I would put it is this: the the you know the side of the question of performance and print cultures, the media event, the Uncle Tom's Cabin media event has now become kind of boring, but a routine. It's established structure. It doesn't change much. There are you know the the Uncle Tom's Cabin performances kind of fizzle out in 1854, but they get revived in 1855 and in, in 1856. It's constantly there in the in the background, as well as a proliferation of other. Um, other uh, sort of derivative uh, uses of, of performance and print, a lot of it revolving around the Kansas struggles. So the model that had been set by Harry Beecher Stowe and then the theater producers then kind of moves easily into a very popular, um, uh, easily accessible, mass-produced um, ongoing media mobilization. Um, it's not really all that new. So I wouldn't call it, um, you know, transformative because that's, that's already happened. Uh, it's now part of the, the, it's now part of the woodwork. Um, so what is also what's necessary, that's useful, necessary and important. And I think in terms of public opinion is, is fundamental, but what had to happen was for the leadership to get on board 
and they had failed in 1854. Um, in June of 1854, a number of anti-slavery inclined politicians had gotten together and said, no, we're not going to form a party. Then on Christmas Day of 1855, um, at the... Um, the Blair Mansion in Silver Springs. Uh, there was a Christmas dinner of um, I've lost track of how many there are. There are about six or five or six or seven uh, key players there, and they um, break bread and agree to form a national party. And they authorize um, the issuing of a call for a convention to meet in Pittsburgh in um, February of 1856. So there's. The, the, the national leadership finally catching up with public opinion. Um, meanwhile, one of the people who was at the dinner was Nathaniel Banks, um, who was already by that point leading in the vote, but had not yet won the um, uh, struggle in the new House of Representatives to be Speaker of the House. Every time there is a, you know, you have a new Congress, we don't notice these. They, they tend to be pretty for pro forma these days. Um, yeah, Nancy Pelosi was, there might have been a challenge to Nancy Pelosi this last time around. Didn't go very far. Um, but we're talking um, dozens, up to over 100 votes that were taken um, in the case of Nathaniel Banks and a few others that in these years uh, for Speaker of the House. It was big high drama, and it took from December into February for him to be um, to be elected, they had to change the rules and go for a, a different, um, rather than a supermajority, but just simply a majority. And he is elected, a plurality actually, not even a, a majority. He's elected in February of 1856. And it's at that point that people suddenly say, there is a North. Uh, and it's, you start to hear it everywhere. Um, it's kind of the catchphrase of the, of the news cycle of that month. Uh, it goes back to Daniel Webster, who had said that there is no North. Uh, Danny Webster uh, had been an anti-slavery figure, but had pretty much given up on it. He basically said, there's no way to unify the North on slavery. Uh, and even Thaddeus Stevens, um, uh, who is a ardent uh, um, opponent of slavery, uh, mocks you know, in, in a major speech, talks about the, the North, the poor, timid, mercenary, driveling North um, failing to unify against slavery. Well, in February of 1856, they suddenly everybody is using this term, including one newspaper that says, um, yeah, there is a North. We just won the speakership and there's a huge cold wave hitting the Mississippi Valley. Um, again, the telegraph, but they were kind of making a joke about the weather. <laughs> uh, so it was um, all those things kind of came together. And that, to my mind, that effectively um, uh, is, is the, you know, the confirmation um, or, you know, the, the, I guess I call it the coalescence of the political movement um, and, from then on out, it would be a reinforcement. How and why did fugitive slave cases, those uh, slave power dramas, and Republican mobilization in the public sphere all contribute to Republican electoral gains in 1856? Well, it's, you know, one, again, it's going on. It's um, uh, people, fugitive slaves are continuing to move and to be captured and there are actually, you know, one drama that I missed, and I didn't realize this until I was, uh, until a couple months ago. I said, why did I miss this? It was incredible. Um, but if anybody's seen the movie Harriet, um, she is helped right at the beginning by Reverend Samuel Green, who is um, 
who hides her in the church and then moves her north, and he appears several other times. He gets arrested. He's a real person, and he's probably his her cousin. He is arrested in 1856 for aiding and abetting in the flight of several, about eight slaves um, who have been who've been in jail and helps to break them out. He's arrested and he has a copy in his possession of uncle Tom's cabin. Um, so, so it's just an illustration. All this stuff is still happening. It's all part now of a kind of received, it's not having the transformative impact that it had in 1850, 51, 52. Everybody knows this and it just reinforces the, the understanding. So all this is supporting the the rise of the Republican Party, which has been which has has had its first convention. Then in eighteen uh, in May of eighteen fifty six, there are three events that happen in late May. Um, one, Charles Sumner gives a huge speech on the floor of Congress and um, a floor of the Senate and against the South, in which he insults a variety of Southerners uh, from South Carolina and is attacked the next day um, and beaten senseless on the floor of the Senate. Um, many historians see this as, you know, the fundamental opener to the mobilization of the Republican Party. I would say that it already happened and it confirmed it would expand. It was up. The, the framework was established and the beating of Charles Sumner fit a, a narrative that people had in place. Event number one, Sumner. Event number two, John Brown um, attacked um, and killed a five or six pro-slavery. Uh, actually, John Brown did this um, following the attack on uh, the city of Lawrence, the town of Lawrence, by pro-slavery forces, the burning of the town of Lawrence. He then took revenge in the massacre of five or six pro-slavery settlers, moderately pro-slavery settlers. What's striking is the newspapers are full of, of accounts of Sumner and the assault on Sumner, and they almost don't mention but John Brown is not mentioned at the time. It's not really that public. Uh, the attack on Lawrence is. All this is is in late May and right at the time that the uh, just prior to the Republican convention, where they again undermine the nativists and have a strong anti-slavery platform. Um, and all this is working. We're not talking about transformative events. We're talking about reinforcing events, confirming events. Uh, and all that then leads to, uh, you know, sets the stage for uh, what had really already begun in 1854, um, uh, which would be the the uh, the rise of the anti-slavery vote. Um, but the campaign would build on um, the campaign for John Fremont, um, who would be the candidate for the Republican Party in 1856, um, built on the culture that had come before, including the the popular electoral uh, uh, um, uh, campaigning styles of the Whig Party in 1840, um, including um, the uh, the language of uh, the cultural language of of hostility to um, to slavery that had been so reinforced by um, uh, by Uncle Tom's Cabin, um, and really it was put the, the the same people who are I, I, I have a little story about about people in Indianapolis, same family. I can track them in detailed diary um, of uh, they go to see Uncle Tom's Cabin. They participate in these parades. They invent a a burlesque show, which they, what they call, which is basically not not racy or anything, but it's basically an assault on on um, it's almost a missile show attack on 
on the pro-slavery forces. So all that is background culture, which is rooted in the sort of the media event at Uncle Tom's Cabin that um, uh, becomes part of the you know the popular visualization of the rise of the Republicans. Can you uh, further uh, elucidate? We're getting to the end point here. Um, the narrowing of the path to the 1860 election of Abraham Lincoln and the binary of slavery and freedom, and perhaps uh, address the Lincoln-Douglas debates, John Brown, uh, etc., and this kind of narrowing of the path. Well, again, that is a point. It is a narrowing path. Um, my position is the path has narrowed, and they are confirming and extending this narrowing path. What I mean by narrowing path is that things may not be inevitable, but there's not a lot of room for maneuver. And that has already happened, is my position. As important as the Lincoln-Douglas debates are, as important as John Brown at Harpers Ferry is, um, these are, you know, um, uh, as far as, you know, they're they're going to be accelerants, but they're not initiators. Um, and thus, you know, I, 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 it does go back to almost the initial in- inspiration for this story, which is that this analysis, which is that the Northern vote um, for anti-slavery candidates was down to 7% in 1852, had jumped to 45% in 1856, and then would rise to 54%. So the big jump has already happened. Before the uh, you know the, the great spread of uh, Republican opinion had already happened, and you're going to add some more people. You're going to add about about another uh, eight or nine percent. Um, but it's it, and and win the election with that fifty three percent of the northern public, forty percent of the national vote. Um, but uh, you know the Lincoln Douglas debates are important in in uh, commit putting Lincoln on the public stage. Nobody knew who he was. He was a, he was some obscure lawyer from Illinois, uh, as far as most people are concerned. And suddenly, um, the, the Lincoln Douglas debates, um, put him on the national stage. Um, more and more people are reading about him or you'll know who he is. And he kind of, they established the, 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 uh, the, what the Douglas debate does is the Douglas side, what Stephen Douglas is, does is to alienate himself from the South because he's, well, you're going to have to have local laws to support slavery in the West. If you don't get those local laws, there will be no slavery. And they're saying, we must have slavery everywhere. And Lincoln is kind of making himself familiar with the public um, and is, is uh, taking a firmly anti-slavery stand, but really only on the grounds of, of uh, human rights but not civil rights. Uh, Lincoln does not take a civil rights stance uh, in 1850 in the, in, in the debates. He takes a very much, you know, he, s- people of color have a right to their, a right to the, 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 the uh, product of their toil. They have a right to a wage may not be, they may not have a right to anything else. By 1865, he would be talking about the vote and, um, that would make things a little different. Uh, that would be that would make the jump, um, and he would be assassinated for saying that. Um, so the question of how, rather than talking about inevitabilities, rather than talking about um, um, uh, or waiting to the last minute, where where we, we the civil war is not uh, going to happen until somebody pulls the lanyards on the artillery in Charleston Harbor against Fort Sumter in April of 1861. Um, 
We can talk about the range of political um, possibility. Before eighteen, before eighteen fifty, there was you know things were getting heated, but there there was no sign that uh, there wasn't some room for accommodation, um, some room for maneuver. Um, but after, you know, after the Republican Party has almost won the election of 1856, uh, there is no doubt. Um, it's just a matter of a few more percentage points. Um, and what is striking about about the 1860 election, um, and here I would refer everybody to Doug Edgerton's spectacular book, um, The Year of Meteors, uh, which is a detailed analysis of the 1860 election, he does two things. One, he analyzes, he shows uh, that by the summer of 1860, once Lincoln has has, uh, has presented himself to the public um, and, and, and has been inaugurated, um, that everybody starts to say, this is inevitable. They'd start counting up the numbers. They do the electoral votes and they say, there's no way this isn't going to happen. Um, and so the, you know, there's the inevitability dimension. And then he actually, Edgerton has an analysis breakdown and basically says, yes, it was a four-way election. There was Douglas, the National Democrats, the Southern Democrats, Breckenridge. There was a constitutional union party of John Bell, which was essentially the old nativists, a few of them. Um, and then the rising Republican Party. But however you slice it, even if you eliminated some of these players, um, if you, even if you reduced it down to Bell uh, Breckenridge versus Lincoln, um, it's almost impossible Lincoln would win, given the Electoral College uh, dimension of, of the story. So ironically, we have an Electoral, electoral College victory that results in a civil war. Um, but it was more or less inevitable. Um, at some point, uh, this was going to happen after 1856, after the what I would say the media event of the early 50s had created the, um, the political consciousness that resulted in the 1856 election. Um, thus, I put before the public an argument the early 50s is really fundamentally important. So I have a final question for you. What's going on with you next? Are you working on a new project that you can disclose? <laughs> um, I am now I'm in a non-disclosure moment right now. I, I have a, um, other than to say I have another, another interest, um, which is, um, global environmental and climate history. Uh, I published a book with Cambridge University Press called A Rough Journey, um, Climate Change and the Course of Global History. And that book came out in 2014. And, you know, it will be somewhat out of date by 2020, 21, 22. It's almost 20 now. Um, so I'm working on a second edition of that book, uh, which is all, which is totally, and basically, you know, I, I wrote a book that was the history of the world <laughs> from geological time. And then this book is really a history of, of five or six years. Uh, so I, it was, um, it was fun to work in these two dimensions. Excellent. Well, we hope you remember the new books in history for that second edition. Well, good. Well, you re- I hope you remember me too. <laughs> yes, great. <laughs> so <laughs> the book is uh, There is a North, Fugitive Slaves, Political Crisis, and Cultural Transformation in the Coming of the Civil War, published earlier this year by University of Massachusetts Press. On behalf of Professor Brooke, this has been a production of New Books in History, a channel, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Please tune in next time.
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.